The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. So seven years ago, this was a very different conversation. I'm really grateful for the spaces that we're in now, but I'm in love with Garrett and I would never reduce him to one aspect of himself. Like he's not just a man, he's all these things. Like I'm in love with so many things. And at any given moment, I have this choice to make. Am I gonna move toward or away from love? That's really the only decision that I'm making at any given moment. And I didn't know where it would lead me. I didn't know if it would work out at all, but I just moved toward love. That's all I knew I could do. It's a wonderful chaos. Do it for random. Messy and glorious. Solo or tandem. We work to find rest. We fight to find peace. Both head and the heart. Like a nephew and beast. What are we doing here? You mean listening to this show? Where the more that you learn is the less that you know. Where the wounded are healers. And the atheists pray? It's a wonderful chaos. And we like it that way. Today we're on with Mike Iamele. 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 In 2014, he writes a blog post and he comes out in the blog post. He goes to sleep and wakes up the next day to find out that that blog post has been shared over 100,000 times. Basically, it, it was a massive coming out party. So we're going to discuss how that feels, what he learned, what he would do differently in the future. And we're doing that on a wonderful chaos. So, Mike, Andy, how did you find this one again? Mike, you know, I did my trolling on on Facebook. And what caught your curiosity with this specific? You know, I um, I'm always fascinated the way we live today, people's lives can change in an instant. And it's like a lottery. It may even be a lottery you don't want to win. But when you've won the lottery, all of a sudden, your life changes without expect without you having expected it. And if you think to yourself, he writes a blog that gets shared over 100,000 times in a day. I mean, we haven't had that many people watch our show. <laughs> and we've been doing it for over a year. I think that might change now that Mike's on the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Andy, yeah. but he wrote a blog and what was the, uh, is the blog like was he came out in a blog. Basically, no one in his life necessarily knew that he was gay. And he said, hey, I'm gay, guys. And then all of a sudden, how he articulated, I'm sure, was very beautiful because it, if not, no one's going to share it forward. So there's something in that article that was so special and resonated with people that 100,000 people needed to share it forward. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure when he wrote it, it came from a very, very deep, honest place. And it was probably so well written yeah. that it had the impact that he, he it's almost like the two sides of a coin. You're really happy that people loved it. And oh, shit. Now, what do I do? You know, it's like it's almost the funniest thing in life. A lot of times I told you with the last letter when it went well. Um, that was the, the first mm. book. I was really like too sad. I was like, I wrote it. I was happy it was done. And then it started to sell and people really enjoyed it. And then I felt a strange sense of, wow, now I kind of feel like I need to do something with this. Where before I was like, oh, I just throw it in the world and it does what it does and it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, that really resonated also for me. And I also can also see that there's a degree of I'm not really goal-oriented. Nice. Is that true? Would you say that's true? Because you know me. I don't feel like I'm goal. I like to do things well, but I wouldn't say I'm goal-oriented. I would say that uh, let, let's take the preparation for the house. Yeah. It had to be done. We had the deadline. Yeah. So there was a goal, but I also saw some things weren't working out, like the bed sheets upstairs. Yeah. And I saw some surrender there. I actually don't know what you did for that, but anyway. Yeah. I found another pair of sheets. Good. So I think it'd be nice to bring Mike on and see what really happened, because he might have a story that's not half as good as the one we just made up. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so interesting to be backstage and hear people talking about you while you're just kind of sitting there. It's really yeah. interesting experience. The fun thing is we can see your yeah, reactions. Yeah, we can see your reactions, mm-hmm. of course. Right. The worst is for us is when we're talking and we see people stone-faced. And we're like, <laughs> and, we, and we say something that we think is funny and then we just see them looking and they're like, oh no, we're in trouble now. And then you see them like logging out. Yeah. <laughs> that, that never happened actually. No, not yet. Um, Mike, can you share a little bit, because I'm curious, you, you wrote a book. Did I did, yep. Out, did the book come out and then you wrote the blog or was it the other way around? So it was all kind of intertwined. So basically, I'll start a little bit before that because it's yeah. all a leading up story. So I was pretty successful early in life. Um, at about 22 years old, I started a public relations agency. And I worked with a lot of you know executives in the industry. I worked with a lot of tech billionaires. And then a few years later, I woke up. I was still working at this company and I was vomiting blood. And that didn't stop for about two months straight. So it was a pretty scary experience in my life. I was in my mid-20s. I vomited blood every day. Um, I was hospitalized a few times just to get fluids because I was losing fluids so quickly. Um, I was kind of shopped around to a few different doctors. And I had a few different diagnoses, but it wasn't conclusive. Nothing was really making sense here. And so at the time in my life, you know, it got pretty bad. Like I went into work one day. And I had to go to the bathroom and I tried to make it to the bathroom and I didn't make it. And I shit my pants at work. And it was just like, I couldn't leave the house anymore. I mean, I couldn't control my bowels. And so I had two roommates at the time. One of them was my older sister's friend. And, you know, she uh, had a boyfriend. She wasn't there very often. And the other one was a guy I knew from college. And we were friendly, but we weren't super close. And he was on pharmacy residency. So he kind of knew the medical system. He also um, was home during the day, quite frankly. So when I couldn't like drive myself to pick up prescriptions or go to the hospital, he would drive me. And over the course of two months, he would start, you know, cooking me dinner and sitting on the couch with me. And it got to a point where I realized I, I kind of feel something for him. And it didn't necessarily feel sexual. I wasn't sure if it felt romantic, but I felt something. And this was strange for me because up until this point in my life, I had never been with a man, and to my conscious knowledge, never been interested. You know, I dated women. I very happily dated women. And so I'm sitting here, and to give you some context, you know, I'm kind of thinking like, shit, am I just scared I'm going to die? And this is like a human within proximity, like being nice to me. I mean, I didn't know what to think about this. But I was also in this really crazy point in my life where I did think I was going to die. And so I was doing radical therapies. Like I was writing handwritten letters to every member of my family saying everything I've never said out loud. I mean, I was just doing like anything that could get me better. I was reading books every day, you know, acupuncture, reflexology, Reiki, like you name it, I was doing it. And so I'm at this moment and I kind of think, you know, if it were any other time in my life, feelings go away. I probably wear brushed under the rug. But I thought, no, Mike, like vomiting blood, I can't stuff things down. I've got to just like put it out there. I said this, he might want to move out. He might want to punch me in the face, but I'm going to say something like that's, I just, you know, so I got up the nerve. And one day I said, you know, Garrett, I don't even know how to talk about it. His name's Garrett. I said, uh, I, I feel something here. And I, I don't think it's sexual. Maybe it's romantic. I don't know. But like, this feels like more than friendship. And I don't know how you'll react, but I just feel like I need to be honest about it. And I'm lucky that Garrett is one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met because he said, okay, it's a little weird, but I'll I'll think about this. Like, let's talk about it. And so, you know, right now I'm condensing months into a few minutes. So there's a lot more that goes into it. But, you know, we sent emails back and forth and our kind of private time thinking. We had conversations and we ultimately decided to explore a relationship. And so we still at the time, it was an open relationship. We dated women at the time. We weren't physical at first, but we were exploring a relationship together. And after about a year and a half of exploring this, um, I, I actually remember the, the time we decided to be exclusive. It was we were at a party and I saw him kiss a girl and I got jealous. And I said, okay, something has changed. Like if I am now jealous, something is going on here. And so after about a year and a half, we became exclusive and we decided this was a real thing. But in that year and a half, we didn't tell our family. We told like very few close friends because we didn't know if it was real or like what this was, or if this was this blip. And I was still sick. So 
there was this thought like, what if I get better and then this is just nothing? And so it was a very kind of surreal time in my life. But we ended up, you know, telling our families about it after this year and a half. And it kind of coincided with something that was changing at work because I got the sense if you're vomiting blood, probably not the best job for you. So I knew it was probably time to leave this job. And I decided to do what I never, ever, ever recommend anyone listening do, which is give a year's notice at work. Because I decided I'm an owner, right? You know, this is my obligation to make sure the company's in good uh, shape. But it was hell. It was hell to your work at a company being kind of phased out for a year, not be able to tell my clients, not be able to tell my assistants. Like, it was a very hard dynamic. And while all this is going on, I'm going to nutrition school and herbalism school. I'm navigating my first same-sex relationship. I'm trying to heal myself. I mean, it was a hellish year. But I finished that and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to be like the herbalist to Boston's tech entrepreneurs because I was sick. I know all these people. Let me help them out and not be sick. So I decided to be an herbalist. About the same time we told up my parents that we were together, mostly went well. You know, not everybody. Everyone got there eventually. We won't name names today, but mostly went well. And we, um, you know, I started being an herbalist and I wasn't making a lot of money. And I thought, shit, Mike, like you just gave up this amazing job. Like no 22 year olds making this much money. You know, now I was like 26 or 27. I said, this is, you know, uh, like I gave it all up for nothing. So I said, all right, all right, slow down. Mm. I'm a writer. I've been a ghostwriter for many people. Why don't I, you know, write about my story? I've never, ever at this point in my life written my own story. And I, I wasn't ready to talk about my relationship. That was not the story because not people in my life knew about that. But I was ready to talk about being successful at a young age and realizing success isn't what it's cracked up to be. And I thought I can start a blog. And so I started my first blog. And about three months later, I got an email. And at this point, you know, um, I should say this, some publications asked me to write for them. So I was doing some more writing than just the blog. But um, I got an email from someone who said they'd been following me. And she was an editor for a publishing house and asked if she could give me a book deal. And so this was one of those moments where kind of like, the hell does this happen? Like you just get a book deal in the, like, sure. You're going to give me an advance to do what I'm already doing. I can do that. And so I, I wrote this book, but in the process, we you know got close, we talked and she learned about my relationship and she herself was a queer, she's a queer editor. And she said, I really want you to talk about this relationship in the book. It's an important part of your story. I think this mm-hmm. is really relevant. And so I said, okay, okay. So she convinced me, I put it in, I turned in that manuscript And then I thought, oh, shit. Like, (laughs) I have to tell people before they find out on the shelves of Barnes & Noble, right? Like, I have to tell. I mean, yes, my parents know. Yes, some close friends know. But most people in my life do not know about this relationship. And honestly, we're still navigating it. We're still trying to figure this thing out. So I'm thinking, okay, I don't really want to have one-on-one conversations with everybody in my life. That's a lot of work to do. And it feels very overwhelming. I don't know how people are going to, be rea- how are going to react. And I thought, well, I have this blog and I am a writer. And what would be way better for me is to blog about it, let people all talk shit behind my back, and then come to me after they've already done their processing. And like, I don't have to handle any of that stuff. So I thought this is probably the best case scenario here. And that way, nobody's mad at me when they find out about this book. And so I write a blog post. I send it in. I mean, I just share it. But one of these publications that I was writing for at the time said, oh, Mike, I really love this blog post. We've been wanting to talk about sexual fluidity. Could we republish it? And I was kind of like, well, it's out there, I guess. So like, and I wasn't expecting much. I mean, it was a a larger publication, but this was going to be like a niche vertical. This wasn't going to be something very, I said, okay, that's fine. So they republished what I wrote. I went to bed that night. And when I woke up the next morning, 100,000 people had shared it. And I had missed calls from NPR, from Huffington Post, from Yahoo News. I mean, it was by far the most overwhelming moment of my life to wake up knowing that millions of people are talking about your sex life. And I mean, really invasive questions, right? Like I woke up to literally thousands of emails in my inbox and it was just about as invasive as you can imagine. Like very, I mean, some of these questions weren't questions. They were people sexualizing and fantasizing, right? So it was not actually a question. It was like, kind of like, can this fulfill my fantasy? And so it was a really weird moment because I was also getting invitations to speak at pride events. And I was like, I don't feel qualified for this. Like, I don't feel like this is something <laughs> like that... I've had 
one relationship. Yes, I don't know about and, like, your pride I, I don't even manner. I don't even know what my sexuality is. You know, like people were accusing wow. me of things and asking me to defend the sexuality that, quite frankly, I wasn't clear about. And so it was this really weird moment in my life where, I mean, we had a stalking situation where, uh, so I, I'm married now to Garrett. We are married. But at the time, my boyfriend, Garrett, um, he had someone stalking him from the situation. I mean, it got really weird. And it's actually, I'll say this because it's now more public. Um, there's a musical being written about us. And so I know really, really strange stuff in life. Huh? <laughs> so at the time, at the time, um, someone reached out and asked what's if the, they what, could. What's the musical called? So I don't know actually if it has a name yet. Um, so I this think, was. I think it. I think it should be called Not So Straight. Not so straight. <laughs> I love it. So I will. I'll tell the uh, writers that that's what you want. Okay, I love it. So what happened was these guys reached out to me, and I think at the time they were like college kids or grad students, and they just said like, "Hey, we really love the story. Like, could we like have the rights to this and like negotiate something?" And so I'm like, "It's not going to go anywhere. So fine, whatever." Yeah. And they interviewed us. And then I hadn't heard Boo a few years ago. They said, Mike, we're still working on it. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't expect much. I don't really care. And then this is a pretty recent development. About uh, three weeks ago, I got an email that said, Mike, you probably didn't expect that we're still working on this, but we are. COVID really helped while we were in lockdown. And we want to share with you a um, recording, a demo of one of the songs uh, with the actor. And it was beautiful, like really, really beautiful song. Now, obviously, they've taken some, you know, creative license with the story. So I had to be, they had to ask if we were comfortable with all of it. But I guess they're going into workshopping it at a college this fall. And by next spring, they're hoping to be off Broadway. So I have no idea what that means, but... What what college is it, just by chance? I don't remember, so I'm really – I probably should know these things. It's in Long Island, but it's a oh, college okay. I'm not very familiar with. I work a lot in Indiana at the School of Music there, so I thought it would be funny if that happened to be the one. Oh, that would be super funny. No, no, these guys are in New York I City. Love, so. I love that it's 22 years old is the moment in time when you say, well, I don't actually know what I love. I just love this person, and it doesn't have to have – any gender uh, uh, connection to it. It's just, I love this person. And what does that mean? And I, and I think it, and, and I think the reason why pride would find that so beautiful as I find it beautiful is that once you, one understands love that you no longer attach it to gender. It, it just so happens that we've been socialized to attach it to gender, which then confuses the shit out of people because then they think I'm not supposed to feel this way when in actuality it maybe you were supposed to feel that way, and sure. then everyone else is fucked in the head, <laughs> right? No, I yeah, it, it was really interesting because I think now, and like I didn't do interviews on this for years because like I had a job, I did good work, and anytime I was interviewed by literally anyone, even if it was totally opposite topic, this is all they wanted to talk about, and so I was like, no, I'm not, I I wasn't, you know, I was at a place in my life where I still felt very objectified by that and very sexualized. And honestly, it also took a toll on my mental health and my body image because yeah. it was really surreal to be sexualized so much. Like when I, I mean, I'm not like a social media person. I'm not, you know, typically on there. Garrett doesn't even use social media. And so I'll tell you, this is kind of a funny story. Um, I'm not a social media person, but what I do take seriously is scavenger hunts. And so Goose Island came to Boston and they were doing a scavenger hunt and like I had to win this thing. And you had got extra points if you downloaded Instagram, which was pretty nascent at the time. Um, and you uh, like it was a wild goose chase. So if you went to the wrong bar, you had to do a sad selfie and you just like looking sad. So I had my Instagram. The only reason I Instagram was 20 sad selfies. And so this article goes viral. And I'm getting like hundreds of messages like, where are the sexy photos of your boyfriend? Why do you just look depressed all the time? And it was really interesting because any picture I posted would get really graphic comments. And I became very insecure about my body. And it took me a long time, actually. Um, I did a lot of work. And now if you look at my Instagram or you look anywhere, you'll see a lot of boudoir photos because I've had this whole reclamation of really exploring um, my own body image on my terms and the way that I relate to my own body. And that's been yeah. another big journey here. You know, what's funny is um, we, uh, we're in Amsterdam. I think there's more sexual fluidity here than in other places just because people don't think 
that uh, one needs to be a certain way, uh, although it still exists, of course. But the funny thing was, was that I was working with several women who were in traditional heterosexual relationships, and then they started dating females. And I saw that one of the biggest challenges that they were facing was the label of being called lesbian. Because mm-hmm. they said, I don't feel myself to be a lesbian. I'm not, yeah. I mean, I happen to have, and when I was hearing you, like, it's interesting because even the label gay feels like it's not really the right label because it's not really how, uh, yeah. how it's almost like I'm almost free to be whatever I want to be. And it happens yeah. to be with a man right now. Like that's yes. more of the feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think, and people ask me that a lot of times, you know, what label do you identify with? And I honestly don't care. Like I'm at a point now where like, you can call me bisexual, pansexual, sexually fluid, gay, straight. It does not matter to me. Um, I am attracted and I've explored my own attraction, right? Like I'm now, I still will be honest with you. I'm more likely to notice an attractive woman if I walk into a room, but I'm yeah, much more attracted. Interested. Right. But I'm much more, I'm attracted to men than I used to be. And I've really, you know, one thing we had to do to explore the physical side of our relationship, uh, we actually use pornography a lot to, because it felt safe to not have to physicalize something, but to be able to say, is there some desire or latent, you know, eroticism here or something we can explore or get excited about together. And so using that was really, really helpful for us to begin to explore parts of ourselves that maybe weren't explored. But just a question about Garrett before. Was Garrett... Uh, had he had a relationship with a male before you were together? He hadn't. No. In fact, he had dated a woman for six and a half years before us. So Gary is kind of only like a you know long-term serial monogamist. And um, that was his only other relationship, only other sexual encounter, actually. Uh, this wow. sounds like a great musical. Sorry. I'm already... <laughs> like, I- I'm really celebrating you from mm. over here. Like, as, yeah. as I hear you speak, the mm. way you've engaged every aspect of your life it's so beautiful intuitive to witness you like Mm. even when you were vomiting blood and and you know you shit yourself and all that Mm -hmm. and and actually saying hey uh, this might be a sign that i'm not in the right job and really listening to that taking the risk Mm -hmm. and it feels like you've just taken risk after risk and allowed that to guide you and guide you and guide you and i what i've seen with you i I haven't heard you being a victim but in fact (laughs) You've been able to tap into creativity and, and kind of say, okay, this doesn't work, but I'm going to try this out. And there, there's, there's also this aspect of what me and Andy talk on the show, uh, surrendering to something that we don't even know what it's going to look like. Mm. And all of a sudden, allow that to speak to us. So, yeah. Mike, amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, it, it, as you were speaking, it reminded me of that moment when I, um, I did shit my pants because I feel like that was a moment that actually changed my life in a lot of ways. In that what happened was I went to the bathroom, I didn't have my phone on me, and I shit my pants. And I realized I didn't have my phone on me, so I couldn't even ask somebody to help me. And so like there was nothing I could do in this moment. I had to leave the bathroom with shit in my pants to solve this situation. Uh-huh. And so I'm sitting there and I'm shaking, right? Like I'm an adult and I worked at the time because I was working at a small PR firm that we started. So it was a co-working space. So it was a big, big co-working space. A lot of people were there. And I remember shaking and looking myself in the mirror and just saying, this happened. Like the sooner you realize this happened, I know I want to pretend this didn't happen. I want to ignore it. I want to like wish this didn't happen, but it happened. And the sooner I can acknowledge that this happened, the sooner I can make a plan to get out of this situation. But I could stay in this bathroom all day crying (laughs) because this sucks. Yeah, the fact that you even said that to yourself, it means that you didn't try to shut it down or push it away. It feels like you fully owned it, even though it sounds very difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, there was this kind of, I'm almost grateful for that moment. And a lot of these things that were kind of crazy, like people ask me all the time, oh, how would you have prepared for this um, article if you knew? I wouldn't have written it. Like, I don't, (laughs) that's not a logical question. I this wasn't an expectation, but I'm now grateful for it looking back because it's changed me. And this moment of shitting my pants, you know, I'm grateful for because it was a forced surrender because there was literally nothing I could do. Like I could do nothing else except accept the situation. And so I cleaned myself off. I ran out, grabbed my phone, ran back, and I texted mm-hmm. a few people, the office manager to put it out of order sign up, a friend to buy me pants, and someone to call a cab for me. And I snuck out the back door and I left. And I mean, it was a really powerful moment. I know it's kind of a, a silly moment to bring up here and seems off topic, but it was a powerful moment because it made me realize like 
literally shit's going to happen. Life happens. Things are happening here. And the sooner I can accept it is the sooner I can be creative to use the situation and change it. Wow. I I really want to read the article because uh, like you're a very captivating, charismatic speaker. So I can just imagine or maybe I'm projecting that the writing is as good as you. So I have some actual terrible news for you. I mean, it's not so terrible and I can always send you a PDF, but Mind Body Green, which is the uh, publication that published it, this past summer took it down because they're going only peer reviewed articles by doctors. However, there is a reprint um, in Good Men Project and Huffington Post. Mm. For legal reasons, I couldn't publish the entire thing. So you can read like half of it. But if you ever need, I have like a PDF of the full thing if you can't get it. I mean, I'm, I know people have illegally reposted it. So I'm sure mm. you can find that if you wanted. Mm. But if you can't, you can let me know. But yeah, it's, it's really sad because people are always emailing me a broken link and like, why doesn't this work anymore? I was like, yeah. I know, I'm sorry. Well, I, I can imagine though, like I know myself, if something inspires me, I want to read it and read it again yeah. until it kind of sinks in because there's so many golden nuggets in your story and your journey. Yeah. Well, you know, I think because people ask me a lot of times, why do you think it resonated so much? And I, one thing I'm grateful for actually today and why I like doing interviews more is the conversation, at least here in the U.S., on sexual fluidity has evolved so much. So seven years ago, this was a very different conversation, and I'm really grateful for the spaces that we're in now. But the one part of the article that um, I think, if I had to guess, resonated with a lot of people is where I said, you know, Gar- I would n- I'm in love with Garrett, and I would never reduce him to one aspect of himself. Like he's not just a man. He's all these things. Like I'm in love with so many things. And at any given moment, I have this choice to make. Am I going to move toward or away from love? That's really the only decision that I'm making at any given moment. And I didn't know where it would lead me. I didn't know if it would work out at all, but I just moved toward love. That's all I knew I could do. And I think that's the thing that's quoted to me a lot by people. Thank you. I, I, I'm thinking on another end, like, you're 22 at the time with Garrett. So I was about, I was, yeah, I was about 25 at the time. So you're 25. How old is Garrett at that time? The same. He's six months older than I am. So, so how is it? Cause even the first time you two have intimacy together, it's got to also be like learning something new or how, how was that experience? Cause. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, people will say all the time, oh my God, you're really in love with this person. And when they see us together, they hear us interacting, they always say, oh my God, there's so much love. You know, the first time you kissed must have been magical. No, not at all. No. (laughs) I mean, the first time we kissed, I had never felt facial hair before. And Gary has a full beard. I I mean, it was abrasive and it felt uncomfortable. And I I hated it. Like I, I felt sick almost. I did not feel good kissing him. And so for a period afterwards, we would hug, but we never kissed. And so it was like learning something. And it was, it was interesting because I've had, you know, sexual situations, obviously, that were purely sexual without emotional connection, uh, without a lot of emotional connection. So to have a moment where any physicality, not just sex, like kissing or hugging, any physicality is an expression of emotions was really unique as well, because it was purely like, I feel something and I want to express it and I want to find a way that's comfortable and right for me. And that's been an evolutionary process, obviously. And, you know, now it's a lot easier to look back, you know, seven or eight, well, we've been together now nine years because two years we were together. So nine years later and, you know, see the situation. But at the time it was really stressful and there weren't many people I could talk to about it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's so, I remember when I, I was living in Australia and, and I've always been quite open-minded, so I haven't really like identified, I mean, I, I've always felt to be heterosexual, but I also didn't mm-hmm. feel like just the label of being gay would be something that would stop me from just exploring. Yeah. And I remember going out one night and having an experience, but I never felt like, oh, I don't necessarily feel like I want to kiss this man because mm-hmm. it just didn't feel like it was coming from a place of, uh, of, of, of curiosity. It was more like mm-hmm. just because you can do it doesn't mean that it's something you just do. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I thought was interesting was that the freedom to be in that space is something that um, that I saw lacking in so many others around me where they would yeah. judge anything in regards to direction of homosexuality or whatever that might look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think I, I, I like you. I'm blessed in that. 
I think I've always been considering myself a pretty open person. And, you know, I remember like I, I lived in San Francisco. I had a lot of gay friends, even here in Boston, I had a lot of gay friends. So it was something that I always thought like, like you, you know, like if ever I felt an inclination to go a certain way, sure. Like whatever I feel called to do, do. And it just hadn't come up. And I think that really helped me because, you know, for, and I am grateful, you know, my parents are pretty open-minded. Um, I won't say that like, Everybody has completely removed any internalized homophobia. But, you know, I think that like I didn't grow up in like this fundamentalist Christian household where this was told to be the worst thing in the world. So I think that really helped me. And my heart really goes out to the messages I get from people who have that level of conditioning and really have that level of self-hatred. And I just think my story, I don't know that I would have been able to explore this entire situation had I grown up with that. And that really saddens me because... Garrett's the love of my life, and I wouldn't have gotten to experience that. How does it feel to be brought forward as this sort of speaker for the pride community, where obviously, like, you're the the kind of poster child of what we would like to see society to be? Well, I think that, yeah, right, so there's problematic aspects to all this, right? Like, of course, I'm fully recognized, like I'm this, you know, white, thin, cis, upper middle class person, right? I'm, you know, Garrett and I are monogamous. We don't go to like bars and clubs. Like, I totally understand the problematic, like respectability politics of like, Mike is this ideal. I'm like, listen, he's not too loud or too flamboyant, which I certainly can be. But, you know, like this is the image that's bestowed upon me. And I think it's been really interesting because even from the beginning, I've always felt underqualified to speak uh, about, you know, LGBTQ plus issues. And I didn't want to speak at Pride events because I and, and even now, you know, right now, I'll be honest with you in my work, I'm running a LGBTQ plus men's group. And it's the first time I've ever explicitly worked in that audience. Now, I have a lot of uh, clients, obviously, in that audience, and they've been asking for this forever, but I've always been very timid for those very reasons. I you know, want to make sure that we are creating space for a whole bunch of different perspectives. And I fully recognize that my perspective is one that people with you know partially homophobic attitudes might, which is it on both sides, actually, because some people might really like me. And on the other side, I'm very threatening as well, because I'm also like, oh, my God, anyone can turn gay. Like, this is really bad. So this <laughs> yeah, you can like, hang around me. You might get it might be contagious. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think so I think there's the both aspects of it. And it's really interesting because like I'm not an object. I'm just trying to live my life. And so yeah. I think for years, that's why I didn't want to do interviews. And I didn't want to talk about this because I was so fed up with these narratives people try to put on me. I mean, um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. Um, when I was on an NPR show once, um, it, they want to talk to me about pornography and how I used you know, porn. And he said a few different things, the host. He said one was, um, well, you said that porn was a crutch. Like, so that's a horrible thing, right? And I was like, since when is a crutch a bad thing? Like, I use a crutch to help me walk when I can't yet walk. Like, that, that's actually a great thing. I don't know why our society thinks it's a bad term. And I said, and he's like, so like, you know, I want you to be able to say right now that, you know, porn made you gay. And it's like, that's not true. Are like, you I'm serious? Not, yes. Like, I, they're like really pushing me into this kind of narrative. And then they wanted me to say, oh, that he said, like, I just don't believe your story. I don't mean to be square, but I don't believe. You. I was like, listen, man, I don't care if you believe me. Like, I, I'm the one living it. You're not. I don't know what to say to that. So it was really interesting. I feel like you know, it took me a long time to own this story and own the parts of myself and develop a level of self-confidence where, you know, I know before the show, I said, I don't mind if you ask me any question because I've done a number of these interviews and because um, I feel like I've really internalized my own truth. But yeah. I think that seven years ago, you know, I was still exploring and still questioning and still like, am I problematic? Am I taking up someone's space? And like, there was just a lot of things. It was really an overwhelming time for me. Oh, I, I just think just if I let it into my system a little bit, I feel so uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. because because there's so much change going on all at the same moment under the magnifying glass of a society that still yep. isn't capable of holding the space that yep. you would need to yep. figure it out. Because everyone needs to put you in a box so they can feel comfortable about the categorization. It's just horrible. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was rough, you know, but but I'm I'm grateful that I'm at this point now where I can talk about it because I do think these are important things to talk about. I'm so excited about where conversations on sexual fluidity and pansexuality are going today. And so it's exciting that I got here, but it took me a while. It took me a little bit of therapy too. 
I have a question for both of you. As you both had relationships with females, yeah. do you ever together say, hey, we would like to have sex with females again? Great question. So we have talked because about let me it. tell you, actually, if I go either way, I could imagine I'd still be curious on sure. the other end as well. Yeah, you know, we we so we have not physicalized that. I'll be totally honest. Yeah. We've talked about it. It's certainly been a sexy fantasy. We've talked about quite a yeah. bit, but it's not something that we've ever you know explored. And part of that is you know we're not sure if you know we were open at a point. We actually did have one experience together with a female um, at one point way back when. But um, we so we've done it. But you know now you know having been together nine years um, and we've been exclusive monogamous for that time. It's a question of do we even want to like do we want to always be monogamous or not? And I think we feel pretty comfortable being monogamous. But I will say that you know if I'm being totally vulnerable here, watching porn together and physicalizing with maybe a woman on porn could be exciting. So yeah, there are ways yeah. to still play with that. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I've been really. Um grateful for I, how you Bambos articulated it earlier is that um, if, if I look at how society evolves, if there's not people like you who are willing to surrender to what is and not live by trying to satisfy any other standards or expectations, then we don't evolve because in a way we're only defined by all of the belief systems that we brought to that moment. And so in, in, in the way um, it feels in this kind of beautiful exploration that, uh, that you've, you've taken in your life. And I just, uh, I'm really, really impressed with that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I, I say this a lot, but I, you know, I think so often like labels and theories are beautiful ways for us to kind of generalize, extrapolate lived experience, explain people's lived experiences. But those labels and theories are only there to explain you. So I always tell people, like, if your lived experience is different than a label or theory, guess what? You've just disproven that label or theory, right? That's yeah. not applying to everybody. You've taught the whole universe, the whole world more about what life is, what it means to be human. You're not the wrong thing. You are right. Any label or theory is there to explain you. If it can't explain you, that's the wrong yeah. thing. And I think we get so, you know, I know in all types of labels and theories, not just around sexuality or gender, but I think that we – so much shame comes from feeling like I don't fit into this box or I'm supposed to yeah. be like this. Why am I wrong? And I want to recenter that and say, no, 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 you're right and we're just learning more about the world around us. Yeah. Yeah, it's identity. I mean it's one of the hardest things one has to sort of – they build and then they try to you know, lessen its grip on you and then you live a yeah. free life again, right? Uh, in my life, uh, also in my early – early 20s, I, I did take it uh, further with a man. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, he kept on flirting with me and he, I, I told him, listen, if I ever want to have sex with a man, you be it. Like, you're, you're very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where we were naked on bed, but I couldn't take it to the next step. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and it was really beautiful because he, he really respected where mm -hmm. I was at. And when I said, it's, it, I really love that I came up to here, but I, but yeah. I don't feel that I can... can or desire at this point to take it further. And um, so as, as I was listening to your story, I couldn't help but connect to that part of my own journey. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I, it's very beautiful. Yeah. Is, well, thank you for sharing that with me. I mean, it's so beautiful that the level of openness and exploration and then, hey, something might not be for you. And that's great. Like there's nothing yeah. wrong with, I've done lots of things in my life that weren't for me and that's okay too. And I mm -hmm. think just, for me, it's just this not being gripped by fear, not, you know, feeling like I'm not going to go for something because I'm afraid. I mean, there yeah. was an opportunity with someone I really had emotional feelings for. And I'm so grateful I went for it because it ended up being something great. And I just wonder about all the people out there because of our societal conditioning who are too mm. afraid to go for that. And yeah, so, clearly. well, yeah. I, I was also brought up in a very macho culture. So I was looking mm -hmm. around all the straight men and I was like, fuck. And then I had a group of gay friends. We'd go out, dance, carefree, and we'd like all over the place. And I was like, wow, um, like what do I I'm, want? I'm identified as that, but this looks really fun. Yeah. So p part of my curiosity was also like, wow, what if? Mm. You know, I, I'm glad you said that because I think so often, and, and I, I don't want to um, minimize, you know, the oppression that many LGBTQ plus people feel, but 
there's some ways I feel like it's really freeing because people just don't give a shit. Like, like I feel like when, you know, as I, you know, dated women, when I was in more quote unquote straight culture or seen as straight, people might be more critical of what I'm wearing or critical. Like no one cares now. I can do whatever the hell I want. And planning a wedding was awesome. <laughs> planning a same sex wedding was amazing because there are no rules. There are no expectations. I could do whatever the hell I wanted. And yeah. people were just like, oh yeah, I guess that's fine. Like I don't. Yeah. So we had a like kick-ass three-day wedding in Aruba. We had like so many fun events and we just did whatever the hell we wanted. And like what we felt, I was like, Gary, you feel like wearing that? Cool. I don't care if we match, like wherever you want, like there's just no expectations. And so I think there is something really liberating. And I've talked about this quite a bit, but I, I, I always say, you know, queerness is saving the world and changing the world. And the reason I say that is because queerness is the fundamental belief that who you are is right, right? Like if it's sexually fluid, if it's, I mean, I will even group that straight, like you can be straight and like be truly, truly who you are. And especially queer communities of color have always been paving the way to advance society, whether it's with fashion, whether it's with, you know, slang and language. This has always been moving forward, definitely here in the U.S. And so, you know, like, because what queerness is really about is the freedom to be yourself, right? And that includes straight people. That includes every person out there. Like, I just want to live in a world where, like, we're liberated to... Why do I feel like, oh my God, the shirt's too gay. I can't wear it. What a stupid thing. If I like a shirt, I'm going to wear a shirt, right? Like that is so silly, but we live in a world where we don't even feel liberated to wear the clothing we want, or we have to worry about our mannerisms or the way we speak or being macho enough and fighting somebody. I mean, so much violence comes from this idea of masculinity or I, you know, somehow being gay is less masculine, which again, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I had a friend. It's funny because most of my life, my closer friends have been gay. And, uh, and I've always laughed because I always felt like, um, anyone that had to overcome the, uh, the disapproval of society and could come out the back end and make peace had character. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I almost found the people in my life who were rounded because they'd overcome things. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, and I associated it more with that than than anything else but yeah. one of my close friends was in the netherlands and we he, th they arrived to the airport and like i held their hand when we were coming out of the gate and and it was interesting because it was this moment when i realized wow i could be attacked for this like it was this it was this weird like visceral experience like wow wh how would it feel to always feel that hey if I showed any expression of love and affection publicly, it could then be. And I, and I think that that uh, like heterosexuals don't think about that. You know, there was sure. a, we had a friend on the show who who was African-American in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And he and I forget the term that he used, but I really thought that they have the luxury of not dealing with that problem. Yeah. You know? So, mm -hmm. so it's not their problem. Mm -hmm. So there's a luxury of not having to worry. Right, right, right. You get pulled over by a police officer being told, keep your hands on the wheel, mm -hmm. you know, all the 20 things that they're told. Mm -hmm. um, and, Absolutely. And, and I, and I do think that there's so much luxury or, or an in, not having an inconvenience to realize that that isn't necessarily the case for others. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That privilege. And I, you know, I, I don't talk about this as often, but you're making me reflect on it. You know, Early on in our relationship, we were really afraid to seem, even though we were like out at this point, quote unquote, we were afraid to seem romantic in public. And it was just something that I had, you know, seen a lot of. I remember even being in San Francisco on vacation, which is a very gay friendly city, and really being afraid to like kiss in public or hold hands. And, you know, there are things like, even today, you know, we've been together forever. I'm not really a huge PDA person, but I've had to like check in, like, is that internalized homophobia? And would it be any different with a woman? And like, these are questions I have to ask myself a lot because of course I still have internalized homophobia, right? Like, you know, I'm still pulling things out of myself and I'm also pulling out snap judgments. I have about people who we talk about respectability politics, who live a very different lifestyle than me. I mean, yeah. people that choose to sleep with, you know, multiple different people every day. Great. Go for it. That's wonderful for you. And I have to check in my own kind of biases on those things. Yeah. It would be great to like, for, to hear out of your mouth a judgment to somebody else. He's so gay. 
<laughs> sure, like, oh my well, God, who is this? Is it me talking? What is this? You right, know? right, right. You've got to like check it on those things. And it's, it's sort of, um, it's interesting. I think actually one thing, um, I, well, I know you have a Netherlands version as well, RuPaul's Drag Race. So I never felt connected to gay culture because I, you know, even today, most of our friends are couples, you know, other couples we go to dinner with and stuff. And unfortunately, all of the long-term gay couples I know have broken up. So we don't have a lot of, so just by chance, most of our friends are straight. The vast majority of my friends have a few, you know, single gay friends, but most are straight. And I never, I don't drink, um, partially lose my health issues. I don't really go out to clubs. And so I've never felt connected to gay culture. And it was really actually through two things. One, watching RuPaul's Drag Race and really kind of learning and getting, which I, I felt so silly. I felt like a like middle-aged straight woman trying to learn about, you know, gay culture, yeah. watching these things. Um, but the other thing was I created a meetup group for uh, gay men in the Boston area just looking to have friends. And because I just wanted to have, you know, more conversations and more platonic relationships, especially given my history of feeling sexualized by a lot of gay men. Yeah. And so that really, um, those were two things that really helped me to start to work through a lot of stuff. Yeah. When you say that sexualized thing, <laughs> it dawned on me something that I also experienced as I was very gay friendly. I also saw that I was seen as this target of, oh, we're going to convert him at times. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so when you said that, it reminded me of like, oh yeah, I remember those times. I, I, I used to sell suits when I was 16 years old mm -hmm. at, uh, in, in, in San Fernando Valley, you know, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I'm the only straight 16 year old kid in a fully gay department. Right. Sure. And, uh, and they were just, you know, they, it, I mean, I didn't experience it as sexual harassment, but today I'm sure none of that would stand. You know, <laughs> I sure. remember the, 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 um, my boss kept saying, Andy, give me a coffee. Like my men strong, black and dark or whatever he was saying, you know, yep. that kind of thing. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because I mean, I think maybe at a point in my life, I would have wished women would have sexualized me like that, but I had never experienced that from women. So it was a very foreign environment for me to have all of these messages and all these things, you know, coming at me. And just, again, like the invasive questions. Cause I think like you, you know, they wanted to convert you. I think I was already convertible. So there was this kind of like fantasy fulfillment going on and it really took me some time to work through the that. messages coming from males or females i assume oh males males, oh, males. Okay. yeah i'm saying i'm saying i would have in the past before that preferred probably women i had never been sexualized like that by anyone yeah and then all of a sudden to have it all um at once it was a lot so yeah it was all by males That's usually there are some females too though interestingly yeah. and, and in a weird way um i hear a lot from my female friends if, if they look at their facebook they've got like a hundred ads invites from random men a day yeah and, oh i've definitely gotten that i've gotten pictures sent to me and so uh, i mean i if i don't know somebody i usually just don't accept like i just yeah, you yeah. know it, or on instagram i won't even look at it um a lot of the time but uh yeah i've gotten things for sure how did you deal with last name when you got married so we kept our own, um, which again, like, I feel like there are no rules. We don't have to do anything. And so if we choose to have children and we probably will, um, we're going to hyphenate. So there'll be IMLE Lack. Garrett's last name's Lack, but I've just kept my last name and he's kept his. Uh, you got a cool last name. Let's get that straight. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Except my, that my dad's from Italy. It's really hard because the I, it looks like an L. So well, it, yeah, we don't oh, yeah, usually maybe. have two vowels in a row like that. So everybody assumes it's an L because like Lamelli, yeah. And uh, yeah, all the time. People are like, why did you keep your um, last name lowercase? People ask me that question all the time. I was like, I, I didn't. So this is, you know. <laughs> they thought you were trying to be cool. Yeah. From all these interviews you did, you mentioned the one dickhead. Um, did, did, did. In that instant, did you see that that individual had an agenda that they were trying to create to like, yeah. kind of, and what was that agenda? Do you feel? So there was a narrative that they wanted to share, you know, especially like that pornography is universally bad was certainly one aspect of it. And I think so. On a show like NPR, just to tell you how it goes when they're pre-recorded, they'll have a producer. And so often the host will get off the interview for a moment and listen to the producer and ask what the producer wants. So like reality TV, you know, there is this idea of they want to get the soundbite they want, right? Like there's a kind of produced aspect to it. And so um, it was 
it was hard. It was scary for me for them to say like, so would you say this? Like they'll use a lot of leading questions like that to kind of try to get you, you know, to say something. And I don't think I gave the interview that they wanted. So they cut a lot of that part out. But um, it, it, it was interesting. I've been on a few like that. I'd say, you know, for the ones like this, they're conversational, pretty freaking easy. But ones that are very short and they want a soundbite, those are tough. Wow. And and also in a strange way, w- w- almost why would you want to do any of those? Because they're not really looking to connect and understand you. They're looking For to sure. basically use your situation to suit a narrative they've already got in their heads. Well, you know, I, I think so at the time, you know, early on the first day or first week, I, I took some interviews. I and PR never called me before. Like, I'm like, okay. Yeah. But, you know, I think actually I, I'm sort of kicking myself now because I actually think that we've done a good job. But NPR has another show, like, I think it's called like Sex, Death, and Taxes or something like that. Uh-huh. And it's a really popular show. I wish I said yes to that one. I just started saying no to everything because after that experience and a few experiences like that, I just said, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And also, this isn't all of who I am. Like, uh, six months after the article came out, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm done. Yeah. Like, I'm a more interesting person. And I think it took me a while to feel this integrated in my life, where now I feel like any question someone asks me about any topic shows all of me, because you can't separate me anymore. But, yeah. you know, in my 20s, that wasn't the case. No. Um, <clears throat> you, you mentioned in the beginning, you wrote this blog, right? And it, the intention was in a way... That you didn't have to tell everyone one by one. So yeah. how, how many people in your life stuck around and how many people left? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I'd say the vast majority stuck around. I'm from, you know, liberal Boston, Massachusetts. So it's pretty, you know, people tend to be pretty progressive around here. I won't say that's true of everybody. And Garrett is from rural Pennsylvania, which isn't as much the case, you know, over there. Um, I would say friends from college and high school. I probably lost some of those. Um, some of that, whatever, like that's growing up. And uh, yeah, there are definitely people in my life I'm not as close to or maybe weren't as supportive of me. But I've also found a bunch of new people who are supportive of me. So, you know, in the long run, it works out. Will you go to Garrett's family for Christmas and the holiday season? Yeah. Yeah. And when you're there, because it is a different background than the liberals of Boston. Sure. How is it for you to be in, in that environment and, and okay. experiencing that? Yes, yeah, so that's where I'm going to get myself in trouble. No, okay. I, I mean, it, it, it's, no, I'm, kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, first of all, they're not going to listen, but no, it's good. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's good. I mean, I, I, that relationship's come a long way. You know, Garrett, they're from a small town. They're a prominent family. So there definitely was some stuff around. Like Garrett was a golden boy. He was captain of the swim team. His girlfriend in high school was the Christmas queen whatever that means <laughs> you know like it was like you know it this was, was perfect we have a perfect yeah. son Uh-oh. yeah they were just that white picket fence was calling so you uh, know i think that might, that you, was you messed him up you fucked that, up. Oh, oh, oh for sure <laughs> you know how many people in life mike's the bitch mike is oh, ruins garrett that see imagine. the problem is garrett is just inherently so likable everybody likes him so like by default i'm gonna be the bitch no matter what and that's fine i actually play the villain pretty well but, you know, I am um, so, you know, it, it's taken some time. And also, I think just I'm not used to being in an environment where things are so gendered. Like they had a um, New Year's Eve party and they had a man soup and a woman soup. And yeah. I said, Garrett, what is the difference? And Garrett said, oh, you're not from middle America. It just means meat. The man soup has meat in it. Like, so there's like, you know, these sort of things that I'm just not used to. And there have been times, I'll be honest, where... I've been introduced as Garrett's friend before we were married. Once we got married, that changed, but I was introduced as Garrett's friend and it was uncomfortable for me to be in that. Yeah, of course. I'm listening to the U S like I'm, I'm Mediterranean. So I'm listening to the U S traditions sometimes. And it just, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I'm stepping into a David Lynch movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, That's right. Twin peaks. (laughs) Was there, like we, we said sexualized, but what was there any hate or discrimination oh. towards, and to what degree did you feel that was a risk for you? Um, like, again, I, 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 so if by risk you mean what I've written the article, I, I didn't know about that. Risk in the streets, pretty low. You know, I don't think uh, people know my face or know who I am. You know, I definitely did get um, a lot of online hate, though, um, from all sides, not just from you know, uh, straight people or like super religious people, 
although that too. Recently, I was um, a pastor asked me to be on a show to have a nuanced perspective and canceled me after we recorded it because she said that basically I was too compelling and it would trigger her audience. And she thought she could put more holes in my story. And so, you know, that was, I guess, a recent discrimination. I mean, we've had, um, so let's, let's stay with that for one moment. Okay. The beauty of what you just said, because the reason why Bambos and I are in awe of you is because you are so grounded in holding the tension of the space you've created for yourself that Others will appreciate and admire you for that. But the same reason they'd appreciate and admire you, you're leading the way for others that say, wow, I can do this as well. Yeah. So the fact that the pastor said we can't run the show because Mike is just too articulate and he's too grounded, we would rather have somebody on who looks like they're a mess, who doesn't have any sense of being. And then we can say, look. This is going to happen to you if you go down that path. Exactly. How how fucked up is that? Right. And I I was really angry because the thing is, she clearly wanted to have a nuanced conversation. She has personal interests, but she was afraid of what her audience would think. Because the interview itself went well. But then looking, kind of thinking about her audience, it was a real struggle. But yeah, I mean, I've gotten... And and the hate didn't just come, again, from that religious side. I got a lot of hate from, you know, the gay community of people saying, you're lying, this isn't true, you know, like you're gay. Like a lot of things. Or or like psychologists. There's a guy who's writing a book, a psychologist, and he sent me a questionnaire about my childhood and things to know because he didn't believe my story. I mean, there was a lot of stuff. So yeah, a lot of that I yeah, could yeah, ignore. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because I think that people would try to create the narrative again, like the professor to say, Oh, were you sexually abused as a kid? Yeah. Right. Because right. This right. Is just, this is just your background coming forward. From of course. A yeah. Dark place, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's sick. Or they would say, you know, you were secretly gay the whole time and you were afraid. So your parents must be homophobic. I mean, there was a whole bunch of things that like that type of stuff came out. You know, in person, you know, we're grateful. I don't face a ton of um, discrimination, but there was an incident recently, actually. We were on a plane going to Aruba. This was about a year and a half, two years ago now. And um, it's in the Caribbean. Uh, Yeah, exactly. We see you have a fondness for Aruba. Oh yeah. My grandparents, (laughs) that's what I said. (laughs) My grandparents bought timeshare there in like the seventies. So we've gone every year of our life. And so anyway, so we were going there, Garrett and I were sitting next to each other and a man said, you have to change seats because my wife wants to sit here. And Garrett's like, well, we paid to sit next to each other. We want to sit next to each other. And he's like, that's, that's bullshit. You need to change seats right now. And Garrett said, well, like, we'll let you sit in the aisle if you want. So you can be near your wife. But like, he paid for these seats. Like we're married. And after this, he just, the, he just, I guess I didn't sit. So it was kind of the man was in the window. Garrett was in the uh, center. And then I was in the aisle. So I didn't hear what was happening, but Garrett told me after that the man was just calling him homophobic uh, slurs and threatening him and saying like, you're uh, I kept calling him Mary. And I, I wish I heard this. Cause I think Garrett's much more kind of um, he'll never like speak up. He's not very confrontational. He's a very kind person. I would have said, you know, we're going to chalk this up to a hate crime and call the stewardess over. But it was, um, so that was an incident that was very blatant um, recently. I'm really sorry that you have to go through that. Yeah, you have to face a society which is so limited in its capacity to see things in nuance. It has to have a label and we have to identify or not identify. And that allows us to make peace with our brains. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's an aspect of... You're putting in a box, you're bad. Yeah. So I, yeah. I and then I'm gonna justify why I'm gonna treat you a certain way. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And I think I have that's been the thing that's driven me crazy about this whole thing is keeping myself out of a box. Because every time someone put try to put me in a box, yeah. it just felt so limiting. And even just talking about this one issue felt so limiting. And now I'm grateful to feel like it's all a part of my whole big collective story and it feels yeah. a lot more fluid. Beautiful. Yeah, there's that famous line from um from uh, what's it called? That Pat- Patrick Swayze movie. Can't put Daisy in the box or something. That's right. Yeah. Can't put baby in the corner. <laughs> oh, baby in the corner. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the worst line that made the biggest impression on the oh, film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, Mike. Which, well, which one was that? This was, what was the movie that Patrick Swayze? Dirty Dancing. Dirty, oh, Dirty yeah. Dancing. Yeah. yeah. Dirty Dancing. 
Thank you for joining us. It was really great to be with you. And I appreciate the fact that obviously you've told this story several times before, but we hadn't heard it. So it was really uh, incredible to spend time with you. I, I think we have to figure out another excuse to get you on. Yeah, totally different subject. <laughs> another different subject. I, so I, what I will say, if you need a good excuse, I have the best engagement story you've ever heard in the world. Like <laughs> no, shockingly no, I, good. I, I mean, I'd like to hear that, but I'd like to kind of maybe do like a nutrition angle. Like you had you're vomiting blood and you turned around your life like that would be its own story and i think that would be a really great thing to have on as well you can tell us the engagement story offline (laughs) (laughs) thank you yeah we really appreciate you making time for us today much love wow this was by far my favorite show this season what an inspiration yeah yeah, I mean, when I said he's charismatic, I like you can always feel when a guest is really giving. I felt really energized being with him. Yeah, me too. I also felt there that what I like with these stories is where we're not falling into the victim or the persecutor sort of roles, but we're allowing ourselves to explore together what it is and allow the dialogue to guide us. Yeah. And I felt that with Mike today was that there was just, you know, where does the inquisition take us and how are we finding and what are we discovering? And that was really, really beautiful as well. He also has an amazing way to self-reflect like during, as he's sharing his story, I just see that he has a really a brilliant way of introspecting himself Yeah, and checking in, checking in, checking in and asking really uncomfortable questions. Yeah. For me, this is a real hero, hero story. Yeah. It hero's really journey. Is. It's a hero's journey and we'll see it made into a musical off-Broadway musical. That would be fun to watch someday. <laughs> we love you and we will see you tomorrow on A Wonderful Chaos. It's a wonderful chaos. We like it down.